0: Welcome, Monsieur. Sit yourself down and meet the best innkeeper in town. A gent of good intent who's content to be boss. Or- Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Circle of Film podcast. This is the statistics episode for the Edge of 17. And. I did mention on the review episode that there would be a slightly different uh, format. And now I will kind of explain what that's going to be. So in previous statistics episodes, I have filled out the spreadsheet of with the film's information and kind of narrated it as I've gone, gone along. And I, I don't know how effective or uh, um, enjoyable (laughs) that is to listen to you know I've listened to all the episodes back that I've put out so far and while I don't personally find anything too problematic with them I do feel as if they have a slightly less uh, level of quality to them I guess I would say so this is, this is the new idea. So I've already filled out all the information on the spreadsheet for the Edge of 17. So now I'm just going to go through and kind of pull out what that did, I guess. I think that while I personally enjoy the pauses afforded me by not needing to talk while I type, a hundred percent of the time that this will be more enjoyable for you. And if that's the case, then I'm happy that I figured it out this early. (laughs) And if that's not the case, please let me know. um, And I will figure something else out. Great, so the Edge of 17, uh, as I mentioned last, yes, last episode, it is, I I gave it an 81 which again puts it right at number 20 on my top 20 for the year so far Uh, I watched it on November 17th it's approximately 96 minutes Uh, I think I captured that correctly on my watch while watching the movie and I do run times from opening credits to the start of the credits the end credits so Unless there's a mid or after credits scene, the length does not include the credits part. So, you know, obviously for Marvel films, it's literally the entire runtime. But for a film like The Edge of 17, which doesn't have any more components to it once the credits start to roll, you know, the film is shorter than advertised. So, 96 came out this year and is the. One hundred and twenty-sixth film from twenty sixteen that I have seen, which is currently the twelfth 12th, twelfth 12th most watched year of film for me. Uh <clears throat> So it's, it's, it's got a couple more to go before it reaches kind of a pocket of films, a pocket of years. You know, I've seen 136 from 2009, 138 from 2008, 139 from 2004. So those are all within like one or two films of each other. It is <clears throat> also happens to be the 980th film that I've seen this year bar none Uh, and that's unique films so that does not include films that i've seen twice this year i am nearing the magical number of 1000 and that is exciting i'm really excited for that Uh, anyway so edge of 17. Uh, so my summary for it is when her best friend starts dating her older brother a high school student struggles to accept herself and her life. And it's tough, you know, I wanted to have the dependent clause in there, but it may have been cleaner to avoid that. My thing is though that I just hate how 99% of my summaries start with the word a. You know, I'm always looking to start thing start my summaries with any other word uh, except a or except the so you know a rabbit recruits famous comedians to cheer up old king cole a murderer is hunted by the police a hundred kittens are left on mickey's doorstep a thief falls in love with a princess a train engineer follows the thieves that steal his locomotive a man picks up a woman that he finds beautiful an acting extra attempts to step into the spotlight a riverboat captain's son joins his dad's crew and, like, I'm just looking at the same pa- one, one segment of the spreadsheet. Like, there's that's not even half of the ones on this page. Or they start with the. And while I get that that's probably statistically... Or, or just, I, I mean, I get that that's how those words are used. It just aesthetically bothers me. You know, I like more, like... Shocking images behind narration of life at concentration camps. Two sons of a lettuce farmer have differing opinions on how to make money. After buying a lemon at a car dealership, Magoo takes it into the water. When a girl and his brother seek to start a relationship, a man steps in to make sure things don't adversely affect his business. Daffy Duck fights with the artist. Sylvester tracks Tweety to the beach. During hunting season, a bear disguises himself as a rug. After transferring to a new station in Hawaii, a former boxing private is punished for not continuing to box. Um, you know, cancer forces a man to undergo life-altering changes to his life and body, but he becomes an immortal superhero. That one's for Deadpool. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, you know I, so I, I like getting a little bit... You know, I like kind of... Variety in my summary sentence structure. So, like I said, it got an 81. And is currently has a 95 on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, yeah. The director, Kelly Freeman Craig. This is the first film that I've seen that she's directed. And puts her, gives her a score of 84. Which ranks her at 447. So, that will start her at on par with a lot of other people, none of which are too well-known as far as I'm aware, Um, does put her above Francis Ford Coppola, who obviously has some great films in Godfather and Godfather Part II, uh, some really good ones in Apocalypse Now and The Conversation, but for me, uh, he really gets dragged down by Godfather Part Three, The Outsiders, and Bram Stoker's Dracula. Uh, so, yeah. It's unfortunate that that is the case. But there's still a lot of films from Coppola that I haven't seen yet. Freeman Craig is also the writer of Edge of Seventeen. And this first film for hers as a writer starts her off with a score of 84, same as director. But she's in 1,112th place for writers. And that puts her above, that puts her above Brian Helgeland, who I have three writing credits for so far. Uh, LA Confidential, which he actually won an Oscar for screenwriting. Mystic River, which he was Oscar nominated for screenwriting, which are both better than Ed, The Edge of 17 in my book. But his last film that he's written, that I've seen so far, is The Postman, which I think is pretty bad. So it drags him down quite a bit, which is very unfortunate. So yeah, 1112, that's very respectable. And I, you know, I look forward to more things of hers and hopefully she'll be able to keep it up. Moving on to actors, the, previ- uh, the best actor going into this film was Woody Harrelson, ranked 32nd overall. This was his 28th film that I've seen and clocks in as his 10th best overall. Between Ethos, which he narrates, I believe it's a documentary that he narrates, which is his ninth best film, and The Thin Red Line, which slips down to 11th. Uh, It bumps his value up to 47, bumps his average film rating up to 68.79, his score up to 117.79, and moves him up 8 spots to 23rd, right behind... Uh, Donald Gleason, and in front of Tom Hardy. So, a lot of good stuff for Harrelson right there. The next highest person was Haley Steinfeld, who was previously ranked 1,652nd, but this being her third best movie, behind Begin Again and True Grit, bumps her up to 1,308th. It's only her seventh movie on the spreadsheet, but... I actually am at fault here because there are two films that she's been in that I haven't logged her as being in. I don't know if that was just a misfire on my part, but she was also... So the films are Pitch Perfect 2, and I'm going to edit these really quick right now. So even... So let's see. Pitch Perfect 2, I gave a 61 to, and that will improve her a little bit higher, 1,285th. Pitch Perfect 2. And then the other one is When Marnie Was There. Now, no, see, all right, that one's understandable. So I watched When Marnie Was There, which is a anime film, but I watched the foreign language version. So technically, Steinfeld doesn't count for that one. So I would have to re-watch it uh, in English to make that count. Darn. Because that would have been really helpful. <laughs> that would have been uh, her second best film. But anyway, so she moves up to 1,285th, which is... Uh, you know definitely progress considering she's 20 or well 19 years old her birthday is December 11th this year Uh she'll be 20 that's good you know she's got a score of 75.88 and I mean she's really only like two probably like solidly high rated films from cracking like the top thousand uh Maybe even as high as the top 800, depending on just how good they are. So, and I really like Haley Steinfeld, so hopefully that happens. I'm, I'm looking forward to more of her stuff. In fact, I don't know what she's, like the Homesman is one I haven't seen yet that came out last year. Uh, she's scheduled to be in Pitch Perfect 3 next year. Uh, I don't know if she's in anything else. Nope, that's the only thing that she's announced in going forward. Cool, so who else do we have? We also had Kira Sedgwick who moves from 2333rd to 2016th, that's this year. Interesting how that works out. This is her number two film overall. And her her number two film and 10th overall. Behind The Woodsman. And, you know, she... You know, Kara Sedgwick's filmography is a little... mm, It's not exactly great (laughs) from what I've seen. You know, there's like an equal amount good as there is as there are bad. Uh, but I do like her as an actor. I think she, you know, she had a lot of good emotional scenes in the film that really worked better than I probably would have expected them to. So I don't know just how much further she's going to get. I mean. Not that she's, like, too old or anything. There are plenty of people older than her that are still doing a lot of great work. But I do feel as though she's found a much better um, audience on TV, In like specifically in The Closer. Um, you know, she's great in Brooklyn Nine-Nine. But we'll see. Uh, it'll be interesting. You know, she was... Yeah, you know, I'm looking at her filmography right here. And all these old all the films that she's been in the last like 3 or 4 years are pretty much indie things that she may or may not have even been a main character in. Uh but her upcoming films, she's in After Darkness, which sounds like the same as something I've already seen. Oh i never heard of this movie. Again, you know, like another indie movie. And then she's slated to be in Submission, which comes out next year. Uh, Starring Stanley Tucci. Primarily. But she's third build. And it's got a pretty significant cast. Janine Garofalo, Addison Timlin as well. So, I don't know. Maybe that'll be good. We'll see. Let's see who else we have. Oh, and so then the next two people were both added to the list. Uh, Blake Jenner, who was also in Everybody Wants Some this year. And those are pretty much his only films that he's ever been in, which, okay, that's not true. But he's, well, short, short, short TV series. Then he was in Glee for three years uh He guest starred in his wife in his wife's TV show Supergirl. Then he was in Everybody Wants Some. Then he was in The Edge of Seventeen, and he's also in Within, which comes out this year. But I think it only came out on VOD, and it doesn't have good reviews. And he's not the main character. But I thought he was really good in Everybody Wants Some. And he's pretty good in this, too. He has a lot more to work with in Everybody Wants Some. I mean, I think Linklater is just a much better writer director than uh, Kelly Freeman Craig is. But that's, you know, that's like very high competition to begin with. He's in. He's got two other films that he's in coming out next year uh, Sydney Hall. which sounds really interesting. Uh, The summary is three stages in the life of Sidney Hall, who writes the book of his generation and then disappears without a trace. And Sidney Hall is played by Logan Lerman. I I kind of assumed it meant like we would see three parts of his life, but I guess maybe Logan Lerman plays all three of them. Um, Al Fanning, Michelle Monaghan, Kyle Chandler, Tim Blake Nelson, Nathan Lane, that's a Alex Kropofsky. Jeez, there's a lot of people in this one. Uh, so that kind of catches my interest. And then uh, Billy Boy comes out next year as well. Starring Melissa Benoist and Blake Jenner. Written by Blake Jenner. So stars the Blake Jenner and his wife. Uh, but he wrote it and it's being directed by Bradley Bueker, Bucker, Bicker, Bueker, who was a producer on *Glee* and *American Horror Story*, and *The New Normal*. Uh, so that's kind of all in the family, I guess. It, I guess you'd say. Uh, you know, I hope I hope he does well. You know, I, I like him as an actor. I liked him on *Glee*. I think he's good in this, and everybody wants some. Hopefully, he can find a career for himself. And that just leaves Haley Lou Richardson, who I've only seen in one film, which is The Edge of Seventeen, but she's in uh I mentioned this you know, she's in the bronze and split, so I'm adding her to the spreadsheet. I don't know if yeah. So uh Blake Jenner ends up starting out it at seven hundred and eighty first and Haley Lou Richardson ends up starting out at 806th. Uh, they're only half a point different. So, yeah, so that's, those are all the actors that I could put in this thing. And now I can finally sort this. Whew, great. Um, let's see, genres. Edge of 17 counts as a comedy and a drama. Um, nearly a romance, but not quite for me. It passes the Bechdel test with flying colors and is rated R. It is not nominated for any academy awards, doesn't hit any of my best picture lists, it's not in my top 100, and it's not on James or Zach's top 200s. So that just leaves the year itself. So it is a comedy which makes it the 60th comedy from this year that I've seen. It is also a drama, which makes it the 48th drama from this year I've seen. Comedy is the most seen genre from this year. Drama is the second most seen genre from this year. Um, with a three on the Bechtel test, it is part of the 44%, 44.44% of films that are part of that. So it makes raises that number a little bit higher. It's still really low, (laughs) though. Uh, As an R-rated film, it is the 44th R-rated film I've seen from this year. Uh, Just one behind PG-13, which is 45 films. Um, Yeah, wow. Because R-rated, I've usually seen... Looking down the list here, the next year down that I've seen more PG-13 films from than R-rated films from... at least according to the data I have currently, which is incomplete, is 1989. (laughs) So that's a long time, wow, cool. So that's pretty much all that I've got for the Edge of Seventeen. It didn't have a huge impact, but like I said, it does enter into my top 20 uh, and I think you know that's definitely nothing to scoff about. I did really enjoy it, and uh, yeah, that's that's where I'm at right now. So, oh yeah, so um, like I've been trying to do for statistics episodes, I was going to look into another aspect of the spreadsheet. For a for a little bit, not terribly too long, just to kind of break down some some more data for you guys. And today, we're not going to be looking at any of the individual any of the individual films, um, that I in my top 100. But we're going to be breaking down the top 100 by their data alone. So I have a separate page on my spreadsheet that looks at data based on whether or not a film has a top 100 ranking, uh, which actually I should probably update to be honest because Arrival broke into my top 100, which means it pushed some other stuff out. Mm, So let's see, number 100 right now is Jurassic Park. And based on the last time I did this, Jurassic Park is 98th, so there's actually two films that are should be in here that are not. Um, uh, so Arrival ends up at, where, where, where? Arrival, based on uh, tiebreakers, ends up between wolf children and dead men walking which is not too shabby. So that's 61st. 60th. Oh, um 60. And then we're going to make different walking 61 and just fill in down the line. Oop, not like that though. In a series. And that that drops out Slither. Cause Slither is number one hundred and two. Twenty-eight days later also falls out. So what film are we missing? Is it taking is it the taking of Pelham? One, two, three. I assume. Pelham, one, two, three. Pelham. It is. Awesome that makes that a little easier. And that actually slots in between the Wizard of Oz and Zootopia. Again, a very good place to be. Uh, Which puts it at uh, 75th overall. And again, this is purely number based. This has is only like 50% based on my personal opinion of these movies. So if this were like my top 100 favorite movies, then it would be a much different list in a much different order. Um, So Topia drops to 76, let the fire burn at 77, and then we will fill down accordingly. Cool, so now that we have the data approximate, let's look at this and see what we've got. So, this is broken down, into all kinds of different things, uh, and there are also graphs to go along with it, which I should actually put on the website. Um, anyway, so we can look at uh, the breakdown by genre and see where my tendencies tend to lie and it's tough because the average film hits about three genres which is why these numbers don't add up to 100 so in my top 100 there are 18 action movies um there are 14 adventure movies 18 animated movies 38 comedies 20 crime movies 8 documentaries 62 dramas which is far and away the highest one uh, 12 fantasy 9 foreign language 6 horror 6 musicals 18 mysteries 14 romance uh, 13 sci-fi 3 short films 3 sport films 24 thrillers 1 western and then 3 of the films are Disney animated films and five of them are Pixar animated films. So drama is heads and shoulders, the number one slot. Uh, Comedy, number two. Thriller, uh, number three. And then crime is number four. And those are the only ones that hit 20. Um, Everything else is in the teens or lower with Western at the very bottom with one. Um, yeah, so it's a pretty uneven breakdown for sure, but I, I definitely think that that a lot of that hinges on how easy it is for a movie to be considered a drama in addition to other things and how dramas generally, you know, people just spend a lot more time making dramas because dramas do much, much more better at the Academy Awards and just an awards season in general. So there's much more care and precision taken with them, which I think is unfair. And I think that it's really overlooking a lot of great films. But I'm not in a position to change any of that. So that's just how it's going to be. The next category, uh, the Bechtel test. So all my top 100 have a Bechtel rating. I made sure of that. Uh, and these numbers do add up to a hundred. So, this one I used a pie graph for, <laughs> and uh, so the number of films in my top one hundred that don't have that the number of films in my top one hundred that don't even have two speaking female characters is twenty-one, which is oh, so high. That's such a big number um like there's more films that don't pass the Bechdel test at all than there are crime films and i guess crime's kind of a specific genre but uh, like there's a lot of crime films but like women i don't know it is ridiculous to me the next so the amount of films that have two speaking female characters but they don't talk to each other is 31 so we're already more than fifty percent of the total movies in my top one hundred don't even have female pe- females talking to each other, which is again ridiculous. Uh, like uh, that's such a big problem, and I think we're moving in a good direction for that. I really do, but and I I realize that the Bechdel test is far is definitely not the end-all-be-all of um, feminist cinema, but it's definitely a, a strong indicator, in my opinion. The next one, so the number of films that have two female characters that are named that do talk to each other, but they only ever talk about a male character, is only 10, which it seems good that that's a small number, but to be fair, that's the hardest i think category to hit it's very difficult to have those characters talk about a male exclusively i mean it does it clearly happens in 10% of my favorite movies or in 10% of the best movies on my spreadsheet but i think in general it's the hardest niche to to fill in uh which just leaves the amount of films that do have two female characters, that do have names, that do talk to each other about things that aren't men. Which is thankfully the biggest category at 38. So that's a positive for sure. And I don't have it broken up as far as like years go. Like I, I can kind of look at the trends. But that's another data point that really doesn't have full... isn't fully... Um, filled in yet simply because a lot of the films I'd probably have to rewatch them because the data just doesn't exist online to know for sure and that's a huge undertaking so there's some a lot of progress to be made but that's the Bechdel test in my top 100 Uh, next we'll look at the MPAA ratings so here we've got um so I've got eight different ratings. Uh, we'll start with G. There are seven G-rated movies, um, which actually comes in at fifth overall, fifth highest. There are 15 PG movies, which is number two. There are eight PG-13 movies, which is number four. There are 46 R-rated movies, which is heads and shoulders the number, the highest. Uh, yeah, it's Almost 50% of the movies are R-rated which again is a big indication that studios aren't making enough great and amazing films for kids and like teenagers and there are definitely a lot like animated films there's so many animated films now and some of them are quite good you know like again like zootopia was at the top of my 2016 list for months and months and months lego movie did the same thing a couple of years ago Um, you know and like between Disney and Pixar alone you've got you know generally two or three movies every year that are very good if not amazing like Inside Out you know like Up like Finding Nemo like Toy Story all these great movies but you look at the R-rated movies and there's just an infinitely higher number of them because kids generally can't get to the movies by themselves and like kids movies are aimed at kids not adults so it's hard for studios to justify you know making a lot of kids movies and that's just a shame you know kids movies are sometimes you know the best movies around you know i would point to so the most recent year which has a kid movie as the best movie i've seen from it is 1998 with mulan then you've got 95 with toy story 94 with the lion king 93 with a nightmare before christmas 88 with the land before time and then like you have to go Pretty much have to go all the way back to thirty-seven for Snow White. Uh, you know, I guess like Wizard of Oz in thirty-nine kind of counts. Or, but like not really a kids' movie. I mean, kids could watch it, but um, but yeah, there's so many. like there's like we hit a peak with Snow White, and then. You know there are a lot of good animated films and kids movies through these years to get us to the 80s but they weren't really they were just always overshadowed by pg-13 r-rated movies which i find to be frustrating but i digress um <clears throat> so that gives gets us to nc-17 there's one nc-17 film in my top 100 which is This Film Is Not Yet Rated, uh, which is a documentary that I think is fantastic. And if you have any interest in the movie business, I highly recommend that you take a look at it. Um, Then you've got movies that are not rated, or no, movies that are unrated. So specifically films that have been given a rating of unrated. So generally that means movies that are It's like an unrated extended cut, as opposed to the next category, which is movies that are specifically not rated at all, which it's tough to make that distinction. I use IMDb for this. So for example, World of Tomorrow, which is an animated short film that came out last year, is unrated, is one of them. Or Anatomy of a Murder from 1959 is unrated. Evil Dead 2, unrated. Uh, Grave of the Fireflies, animated film from 1988, unrated. The Hustler from 1961, unrated. Now, as far as not rated movies, there are 13 of those. And actually, I'm just going to Google it. Maybe there's an answer. Not rated versus unrated. Unrated. I feel like I've definitely looked at this. Oh. Okay. That makes kind of where I was headed. So basically, unrated is just a movie that has additional scenes that were not part of the rated version. Okay. That makes sense to me. Does it to you? I think so. That's fair. Um... Well, I kind of though like, Grave of the Fireflies had a rated version. Maybe it's like rated in Japan and not here. I don't know. Anyway, uh, thirteen not rated movies, which is the third highest category. So generally, the third the not rated movies are going to be um, foreign films, documentaries uh, that make the list, or older movies that just didn't get rated at the time, like Harakiri or Sita Sings the Blues, an animated movie, The Philadelphia Story from 1965, um, or And Everything is Going Fine, which is a documentary. Uh, So that's that, that. And then the last category is the approved rating, which we no longer use, and it doesn't have a direct correlation to what we use now. So it just means that it's been rated and is okay to be watched by people. That's how they used to use it. There's five of those. So for for example, um, you would have a movie like uh, The Bridge on the River Kwai from 1957, or uh, Bonnie and Clyde, which is insane because Bonnie and Clyde is so violent. I don't know why it's approved. Uh, but the Wizard of Oz gets an approved rating and uh, vertigo gets an approved rating and as well as it's a wonderful life. So you know it's it's not a not a um, rating that we use anymore, but I don't have anything easy to compare it to, so I keep it as part of the spreadsheet. And then the last statistical measure is decades. So, how many films from each decade make my top 100 currently? Um, now, this one is going to start to seem like there's a pattern. Then we're going to buck the pattern a little bit uh, about halfway through. So, we'll start with the more recent decades. So, in 20 in the 2010s, 31 of the top my top 100 films were released so that's almost a third of the total movies which is really high and it's a number that I'm kind of frustrated by because I do want the variety to be there I you know obviously I'm going to be biased towards films that came out sooner because or more recently because I'm alive now I wasn't alive then you know and so i'm more of the target audience that these films are being marketed toward i'm better equipped to enjoy them as opposed to a movie that took place in the 50s and was released then and i've never lived in the 50s so i don't really know you know when they're using um (laughs) rotary phones you know i've never used a rotary phone to call anybody and like, that doesn't really generally have an impact on the movie. It's still something that disconnects me from it. Um, so I'm you know, always trying to kind of watch older movies. And hopefully kind of bump some of the more recent ones out. When I can. In the 2000s. So from 2000 to 2009. There are 22 films. So we've gone down a little bit. Uh, but that already puts us over 50%. That's 53 of the 100 movies so far. In the 1990s, there were 18. That brings us up to 71 films of the 100. So that's about three fourths. And then a huge drop off between the 90s and the 80s. So there are only five films from the 80s that make my top 100, which is shocking especially when you find out that there are eight films from the seventies. So we actually, there are actually more films from the eighties that are from the seventies than the eighties on my top 100. Now, I don't know if that's a lack of films that I've seen in the eighties, but I can just kind of look at this really quickly. From, I've seen 260 films released in nine in the 1980s and I, about half that for the 70s. So in half as many films, I've seen almost twice as many that make my top 100. Um, And then in the 60s, there are nine. So again, we move back up uh, from the 70s to the 60s, which I'm actually really happy about. You know, I'm glad that it's not just a steady downward slope to get from present day to the past. Uh, you know, it's it's good. You know, there's so many older movies that I really enjoy, that I've really loved, and I've been so happy to have discovered despite it being 50, 60, however many years later since they first came out. Then there are four films from the 1950s that make my top 100, uh, which are... Uh, 12 Angry Men, Anatomy of a Murder, Bridge on the River Kwai, and Amore... Wait, no. Uh, and Vertigo. Yes. Amores Peros was is number 195 on IMDb. That's why I came up on the search. Uh, yeah. So, some great films from the 50s. Uh, then we go down to three films from the 1940s. Which are... 194, The Philadelphia Story, which is number nine overall, Casablanca, number 25 overall, and It's a Wonderful Life, number 92 overall. And the that's 99 of my 100 films. The last one is from the 1930s. So I do get all the way back to the 1930s for my number 74 film, The Wizard of Oz. So it's, it's not as wide of a variety as I would like it to be, but at least it does touch on every decade going back to the 30s, which I am pleased about. So yeah, that's the breakdown of my top 100 currently. Like I said, I did just put in the taking of Pelham 123 and Arrival. So the number, the 31 films from the 2010s that are on this list, that's probably a number that's only going to be much higher by 2019. Hopefully, over the next three years or so, I can mitigate that ascension by expanding my horizons more and watching just as many, if not even more films from... Like before the nineteen nineties, uh, but you know, we'll see. Maybe you know now that we're there's like two to three to four times more films coming out a year than there were back then. So uh, it stands to reason that there's going to be a lot more opportunities for a film to break into the top one hundred now than there would have then. So yeah. That's That's today's episode. Thank you for listening. Please have a wonderful wonderful week. Have a week, just a week. And I will talk to you again soon. You can find all my contact information at circleoffilm.com or email me at, at gmail.com Thank you again. Hope you enjoyed the episode. And at the risk of sounding repetitive, have a week.